0: plushcare.com slash weight loss yo technology
1: what is it all about you take a sample from a cow about equivalent to one of my fingernails so 2.5 milliliters the cow doesn't feel anything it goes back to whatever the cow was doing before so theoretically that little sample in 40 days can produce the equivalent of seven or eight cows worth of beef, about 3,000 kilograms, or in American terms, about 7,000 pounds, whereas the cows themselves would take 28 months in a feedlot to grow to the point where they could be slaughtered to produce the meat.
0: Hello and welcome. To Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. You know, last week, I promised that I'd be doing more stuff on this whole cultured meat phenomenon. And so here we are. This week, we have none other than Jim Mellon, who is the billionaire Scottish investor who is by some distance the single biggest investor in the world in this sector. He's backed a whole bunch of companies. He just raised nearly $100 million through his investment vehicle, Agronomics, to really double down on his investments. And I just wanted to talk to him about the why. Like, What does he see that is so compelling that as a canny investor, he has decided that now is the time to just bet a whole boatload of money on this brand new industry of factory-made fish, beef, pork, poultry, etc. And anyhow, I think you'll just find his insights and his conviction about why this will be the way that we produce and eat meat in the not-too-distant future uh, really intriguing. And I'd love to hear about what you guys think of what he is saying, as well as uh, from last week's guest, Mark Cotter at BitBio. But it's clear that something is happening here. You know, five years ago, there was one lab-grown meat company. Now there are more than 70 and they're more and more cropping up all over the world. You know, there is momentum building here. Um, and it's going to be just be really interesting to see how all of this plays out. So that's it. Here's my conversation with Jim Mellon, one of the people right at the heart of this movement. Enjoy. I'm just fascinated by kind of, let's call it lab-grown meat, cultured meat, cultivated meat, whatever you want to call it, and I came across agronomics and um, what you very cleverly called Moose Law, which I enjoyed, (laughs) but what is your interest, and what is the vision, like what's what's your thesis here, because it does feel like um, the way I kind of view it is that we're at this kind of tesla roadster moment in that we've got this new technology it's been proven but it's still kind of expensive niche not scale and now it's about getting to the kind of model three or much cheaper you know kind of mass adoption and scale up but i don't know if you agree with that kind of comparison
1: yeah no i I absolutely do But as yet, the companies that we've invested in don't have Tesla prices. Um, (laughs) So there's (laughs) there's still upside to be had on a considerable basis. And of course, I think the total addressable market for what these companies are doing is even bigger than the EV market. Hmm. You know, we calculated at $5 trillion. So it's not just about food. It's about uh, materials as well. It's about the picks and shovels that go into making Moose Law happen. So the, the origin of this is that I've been in biotech for quite a while with my partners. We've created a number of biotech companies and really the process by which this, at least the initial foods and materials are made is a biotech process. And so it was a natural thing for us to get involved in and uh, economics, as as of yesterday raised just short of another $100 million, which it expects to invest in the next nine months. So, the as the companies scale up, they require, as 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 you know better than anyone, yeah. more and more money. And they uh, so they're at the stage now where most of them are doing A's, and some of them are doing well. A few of them will do B's, and maybe even some of them might list, possibly via Spac's in in the in the U.S. So, whereas up till the end of last year, you know, not much more than a billion and a half dollars have gone into the sector we would expect this year to be at least another $2 billion coming in. And it's a bit like being an admiral in the Swiss Navy, Danny. At the moment, (laughs) we're the largest uh, in the world. and uh, We're partly helped by the fact that there's nothing else that people can invest in. Uh, And also that, as you know, a lot of the investors in this field are purely philanthropic. So people like, you know, Chuck Lowy or Jeremy Collar, and they're doing it because they Want to reduce intensive farming to reduce animal cruelty, which is a something that I share with them but uh, we 're kind of quasi philanthropic and quasi commercial so by the time we invest this money we 'll be you know a quarter of a billion dollars in it, plus we 've got another pot of money coming from largely the Middle East, which will be another three hundred million dollars so you know we 'll be able to lead some rounds and to invest in some new things but I think there's four big opportunities here, if I can just summarize it for you. One is investing in these companies. Two is creating, as we've done in our biotech business, white space companies uh, using licenses from research institutions and finding opportunities that haven't yet been addressed. And we're hoping to do one of those quite soon. And then there's the licensing business where you take a company from the West Coast of America, for instance, which doesn't have any idea about how to go internationally And team them up with a strategic partner, let's say in the Middle East, where 95% of the food is imported. Mm. The partner provides the money to build the factory to produce the proteins, and the company provides the technology. And and somewhere in between are pots of money uh, work. And then the last one is, is carbon credits, because these alternative protein companies have not yet exploited the opportunity they have to sell carbon credits. No. Uh, but we know that all the conventional food producers are going to be taxed on their carbon emissions, which are high.
0: We, how do we know that? Is that in train, or is that just kind of logical, just given how intensive?
1: No, it's 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 in train, in train. But you know, all these companies have been scrambling just to get a product to raise money. To you know, they can't do everything at once. And uh, but it's something that we we want to help with, and uh, it gives them a price umbrella. Uh, in the early days when they're, as you rightly point out, they're Tesla Roadsters, and, you know, they're they're dial up stage of the internet, really, and, and they're not very commercially viable.
0: So you're investing all of this money. But again, just going back to the analogy of Tesla, they nearly went bankrupt every year after the Roadster for about a decade before they kind of made it to the promised land, which is a very, very recent phenomenon. Are you sure that you're not too early here? And do you see the path to this becoming a gigantic industry? Is there anything that you're like, well, we still have to crack X?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a great
0: question. Because
1: one of the reasons why we have uh, relatively many investments is because as I said in my book, I think that some of these companies will be sold, and the reason that we're attracted to Cellag in particular, relative to plant-based, is it's typically got a stronger IP moat than the uh, the plant-based stuff. Some of them will fold; it's the nature of the game, and uh, some, not many of them, will be bold, maybe upside, just uh, Blue Nalu, a couple of others, and go public. So yeah there will be unfortunately there'll be uh you know failures the ones that will be bought i think will be bought for their technology by the big food companies which largely agnostic to what they sell as long as it's legal and the consumers buy it and uh there are already you know some investments by the big food companies in some of these companies your point is correct all while all the companies have products they all have something that you can eat or taste or feel yeah None of them are at great scale yet, and that's going to be the big challenge. But we we look at that really, really closely to see what their path is to reducing the cost of the media, getting the price of the growth factors down, scaling up in terms of bioreactors, making them cheaper, and some of them are going to do it. I mean, I've got no doubt about that. So I'll tell you, in my opinion, the dairy industry as it is today will be gone within 10 years. I mean, you can see it all around you in California, especially Plant-based milks, uh, but then the precision fermentation is is a it's an established product, even if it's not at scale. And I see no reason why we'd ever be drinking milk or eating cheese or eating yogurts that have cows associated with them, because it's just going to be so much better. So that's one industry that you can tick off. The seafood industry is under a lot of pressure, not least because of the recent documentary and. There are very few environmental positives about seafood, as indeed there are almost no human health positives, given the mercury toxins, antibiotics, etc., etc. And uh, Blue Nalu will be producing a few hundred kilos for sale in the U.S. a week by the end of this year, which is quite remarkable. And has engaged with regulators from an early stage, has raised enough money to do it, and has a very, very good business plan. And uh, seafood, I think is much more consumer accepting because people are aware of the problems with seafood and their first product would be Mahi Mahi, which you'll be able to try or buy at the end of this year. Wow. And leather, of course you don't eat it. So it's already on the market.
0: Right. And is the vision to replace industries because, you know, you talk to some of the CEOs and there's kind of a dance. It feels like they have to do where it's like, well, you know, they're, in other words, they don't want to piss off the powers that be. And some of them have big meat or big fish investors. So the, I haven't come across one yet who said, yeah, we want to replace the beef industry or the pork industry, or whatever it may be. But you as an investor, how do you see it? How do you see this playing out?
1: Yeah, well... You know, Dean and Borden have gone bust in the US because of, I think, largely the encroachment of the plant-based milks in the last 10 years. There's a sort of tipping point of economic viability.
0: Dean and Borden, Borden, the O-R-D-E-R-N,
1: they're the two biggest dairy producers in the US. And I, I don't know what the exact percentage is, but it's estimated to be around a fifth of the US market is now plant-based. And that's up from... Half a percent or one percent ten years ago, so the trajectory is pretty clear. So that's why I make the session about dairy. In terms of you know replacing the whole industry, I mean a lot of people will say, well, what about the artisanal farmers of, of beef and what about the ones who treat their uh, animals well? Uh, the reality is there aren't very many of them. In the U.S., farming of animals is ninety nine percent intensive, and you know the fact is the chickens are three times as big as they were in nineteen fifty they're completely distended. They live brutal, short lives, 23 days. What's good about that? There is there's nothing to applaud about that industry. And the same goes for swine and or hogs, as as you call them and, and cattle in the US, they, they have miserable and, uh, and and really bad lives. So that I, I, if we did replace those industries, the
0: intensive farming industries it would, I wouldn't be shedding any tears for them. Mm. But do you think that'll happen? I mean, I'm not saying the beef industry, the meatpacking industry will go away, but that, you know, looking at dairy as an example, they could get to, I don't know, half the market, At uh, for example.
1: Uh, I think in dairy, you know, artisanal or cheese manufacturers will probably want regular dairy, and that will keep some part of the market alive. But the bulk of the liquid market will be gone within 10 years. In meat, I think the rethink uh, the London-based Institute that came up with that report, which says 50% will be plant-based or cell out based within by 2030, maybe a little bit optimistic, but it's on the general right path for so about half the market. And in fish, I think the figure could be higher just because of the consumer backlash against both farmed fish and wild-caught fish is impressive. And, and the product is identical without any waste, without any toxins, mercury, et cetera, et cetera to the best of species. So, uh, and you know, a company like blue Nalu is now producing or expects to be selling its product at only twice the, uh, the price of the, of the mahi-mahi that you buy in the U S now. So it's not very far for it to fall back down to griddle parity basically. Right. So yeah, I'm very optimistic about it. I just don't know what the exact trajectory will be, but you know, when I started my career in the mid 1980s in U S tech, no one had any idea what it was going to become. And no one knew who the winners were going to be, but the winners there are, and then you know they're, they're all around you in San Francisco. Uh, I think that uh, obviously the winners in this industry will be completely geographically dispersed. I don't think there'll be one sort of food valley anywhere that produces all the innovation, and already you're beginning to see that happening around the world.
0: But the the scale of the opportunity is as big or bigger.
1: I, I don't think it's as big as the whole of the tech industry. Yeah. But it's certainly as big as the electric vehicle industry, and because of the IP protection that these companies have developed in the last three or four years, it could be more profitable in individual companies that you know because although Tesla is a great company, it's safe suffering from it's going to suffer from the fact that the Germans, the land Rovers, the, every other company in the world that makes cars is going to be producing electric vehicles uh, uh, as well. so the competition is going to be enormous. I don't think the same will apply in certain categories of the food or materials industry. But I can't say which is going to be uh, the biggest winner. We can only guess at them. But at the moment, these companies don't have particularly high prices. Uh, They haven't suffered from their sort of frenzy because none of them are public. They're not available to the public. And and institutional investors can't work out what category they they fit in. Um, If you're an agri-investor, maybe... That's an area you might look at, but it wouldn't be your full time. And if you're a biotech investor, uh, it probably doesn't fit into your normal remit for investing. So the, it's it's a difficult one for investors to get hold of. But yeah, you asked me, is it going to happen? Yeah, I think 10 to 20 years, most of the stuff that we're talking about will be produced in, in an industrial way on a very small fraction of the land with very small water usage relatively To the current production, and obviously with a much lower emission level, even though some people dispute that. I think that that is a clear cut case that about a fifth of emissions come from intensively farmed animals. And the energy intensity of this stuff is much, much lower. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at Bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments.
0: PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And you talked about the carbon credit side of things will only be... Because I cover this stuff in some way shape or form and used to cover energy. But when I buy beef ground beef at the store, I do think like I wonder what the carbon footprint of this beef, this kind of pound of ground chuck is. But you said that it is in train that carbon costs will start to be factored in. Can you just talk about like how and when that's gonna happen because I feel like that is a that is significant.
1: Yeah, well, as you know, this year is COP 26 here in the UK, actually Glasgow, my dad's hometown, and I think there'll be much of the world there'll be generally applied carbon taxes. I mean, there are some carbon taxes already that are levied, particularly on things like cement, fertilisers, you know, very energy and uh, uh, steel producers, very energy intensive businesses, and they have to buy carbon credits to offset their pollution and. Those carbon credits are typically bought from people who are planting trees in the Amazon or, you know, Tesla, as an example, has made, as you well know, uh, all of its money in the recent quarterly earnings from selling carbon credits to, I can't even remember the name of it now, but some sort of funny name that the PSA uh, Chrysler uh, Consortium calls itself now. But it's only now that the food producers are coming under the glare of the spotlight. And by the end of this year, I'm pretty sure there will be in Europe at least carbon credits on conventional food producers. And the obviously the alternative producers should be claiming the carbon credit. So somehow or other, we want to get in the middle of that for the benefit of our fund shareholders, basically. And, um, and that's what we are doing. But as yet, it's a bit like everything else in this, it's pulling pieces together that will take some time. I think that's the last of our pieces to fall into place. But we know that we've got a licensing deal in the uh, in the Middle East that's upcoming. And we know that we've got a white space opportunity that's upcoming as well. So those are two of the
0: other boxes that are being ticked at the moment. And um, it's, uh, you know, it's impressive. And you said there's a like $300 million in money from the Middle East. Is that going to be invested via agronomics and as you guys choose? Or what's the situation there?
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it's basically going to be pari passu with agronomics but it's a it's an unlisted structure because that's what they prefer right and uh, so everything that we invest in will be what's the right way of putting it prorated across the two pots of money and it is uh what we choose i mean obviously we're hopefully not reckless in what we choose but um you know it'll be follow-on rounds of existing companies that we like it'll be new companies that are coming along that tickle our interest there'll be picks and shovels in the industry, which I think is a really interesting area to invest in. And then the licensing, uh, white space opportunities as well. So we were part investment company and part sort of operating company. My colleague who is on the ground sort of, you know, talking to all the companies on a daily basis, has worked with me for 15 years, largely on the biotech side. So he's pretty familiar with it. And we've got a I hate to say a beefed up team, but uh, you can say that you can say that more people. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And uh, in agronomics, we don't charge a management fee, but we do have a performance fee. And then the other one, we, we charge a modest management fee because this is not a get rich scheme for us. I mean, I'm the biggest shelter of agronomics and I'm very happy with its performance. But for us, it's about trying to accelerate the process of needed
0: change in the way that we eat. Around the world. Are there any problems in terms of, especially when you're thinking about beef, the idea that you have to use fetal bovine serum as the kind of starter dough, so to speak? Or is that no longer the case because now you can kind of create stem cells out of other cells?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So, the
0: only company that we
1: know of that's still using FBS, which in a way is completely antithetical to the values and goals because you know the way that that's extracted it's pretty awful is eat just but i know that they're trying to you know find an alternative the growth factors are now synthetic growth factors they're very expensive still but we can see the prices coming down dramatically and you mentioned the use of ipsc cells these pluripotent stem cells which are uh, meetables using which obviates the need for growth factors of the current type. But the iPSCs, which is why Dr. Cotter is so important, are unstable. They're difficult to to handle. And he's found a way of doing that through his Cambridge-based uh, company. So we are actually big fans of the meatable thing. And, and theoretically, as I'm sure uh, the good doctor told you, from one cow, he could feed the, or they could feed the world forever without the need to go back taking stem cell samples from cows regularly so we are very excited by what they're what they're up to but you know all these little uh sort of lights of technology that are shining sort of in different parts of the world we know that they're incrementally they're leading to moose law price coming down scale going up taste texture convenience being the same for consumers possibly the price being the same or even lower mm. and then mass adoption and uh Our major thrust is in in ground beef, obviously, because it's 60% of the US market and it doesn't need careful structuring. And actually, people don't really mind if it's in a sausage or it's in a patty, what it looks like. So, we're going after the low hanging fruit. We're not really interested in the niche stuff like kangaroo meat or caviar or fur, which some companies are working on at the moment.
0: Right, right, right. So, what does keep you up at night? What's the thing that could derail all of this? Or is the idea that there isn't
1: well, what happens if one of these foods gets onto the market and causes mm. food poisoning or worse? yep, I mean I think that's the you know that 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 is something that's a matter of great concern, but they're all regulated, they're all engaged with the regulators though all their stuff so far has been closely examined by regulators, and because they're not using g m there should be an open pathway to commercialization the second thing is that you know we can't the biggest cost is the growth factors and you know i know that meetable meat, is finding a way around them but what happens if their way doesn't work because the ipsc cells are too unstable and what happens if the growth factors just don't come down to the price of recombinant proteins developed by drug companies for very big diseases like uh, diabetes so insulin for instance is uh, effectively a growth factor that is is cheap and or is cheap to produce we need to get it down to that price so and then there 's the corporate execution risk i mean none of these companies existed until a few years ago, none of them have ever turned a profit. none of them have been you know gone through the whole of their business plan and and we don 't know if they 're going to be the right ones to to take it forward but I suppose that was the risk in technology in the early 80s and 90s, basically. And some of them have come through. We'll just have to navigate those waters. But, you know, I don't doubt that the industry will succeed. It's a question of who will succeed in it.
0: Yeah. And for the folks at home who aren't au fait with all this, what is a growth factor? Basically, in a nutshell, just in principle, you
1: take a sample from a cow, about equivalent to one of my fingernails. Mm -hmm so 2.5 milliliters. The cow doesn't feel anything. It goes back to whatever the cow was doing before. You extract from that sample what are called stem cells, which are the precursor cells to all forms of life. But these particular stem cells, you want to differentiate into the key components of meat. And those are muscle, principally, fat, and connective tissue. But Ultimately, most of the companies will just use the muscle and fat. You differentiate them into those uh, through established biotech processes, and then you you feed them. You amplify them by bathing them in nutrients, which are roughly equivalent to what the animal would be eating if it was being intensively farmed. So amino acids, starch, sugar, blah, blah, blah. But to make them amplify quickly, because otherwise you'd be sitting around forever, you introduce growth factors which encourage the Amplification process and the doubling process becomes faster. So theoretically, that little sample in 40 days can produce the equivalent of seven or eight cows worth of beef, about 3,000 kilograms, or in American terms, about 7,000 pounds. Whereas the cows themselves would take 28 months in a feedlot to grow to the point where they could be slaughtered to produce the meat. And of course, the meat that comes out of the lab doesn't have any contaminants, doesn't have any antibiotics, any hormones. There is no waste. there's no head, there's no tail, there's no uh, uh, leather or hide, all that sort of, and no entrails, nothing like that. You just get the best of the bit that you want from, from the animal. So that that's the exciting part of it. And all of these companies have produced prototype scale, so they can produce a few litres, a few kilograms of whatever they're talking about. Only Eat Just claims to be producing at a bigger scale, but I don't really know what their production figures are. You'll you'll be able to ask them yourself when you talk to them this afternoon. So that, that in a nutshell, is, is, is how the whole process works. And you can do it really for anything. So you can do it for collagen, which is currently derived from animals, which is a very big market, particularly in cosmetics uh, and food. You can do it for threads. And so there's a company called Bolt Threads in the U.S. It's raised quite a lot of money you can do it for cotton. And one of our companies, Geltor is doing it for cotton, which is hugely damaging to the environment. Um, so that's why I say the total addressable market is huge. And then the subsectors. So I don't know, infant formula, there are companies working, there's one in the US called BioMilk, one in Singapore called Turtle TurtleTree, trying to get cells to express, or to become mammary cells basically to produce milk. And the infant formula market is enormous. It's between 50 and 60 billion US dollars a year. So that's why I say the total addressable size is very big. The margins could be better than conventional food because the input ratios are much lower than going into animals to produce meat at scale. And it's very, very disruptive. And it's happening quickly. I mean, this is a this is exactly your area, Danny. I mean, you know, yeah. this is, it's... Uh, The disruption of very old industries basically
0: and that going back to that fingernail size sample how is it that there are stem cells in there because the whole the traditional kind of controversy around stem cells you had to get stem cells from well in the case of cow's fetal bovine serum you're like extracting blood from the fetus until it dies that's what's obviously not great How are you getting stem cells from just any old cow?
1: Well, the fetal bovine syndrome is a growth factor. Mm. And so the fetus, as the cow goes to slaughter, is giving up. Yeah. Pretty gruesome. It's growth factors that will allow that fetus to grow into a, a calf. It's different with stem cells. We all have stem cells everywhere in our body. Basically, when our cells die, we need to get new cells. And those stem cells act as repair mechanisms or progenitors for our our whole regular and recurring development. There are also very early stem cells, uh, embryonic stem cells, that are extracted from human fetuses effectively, or from the umbilical cord. But that's not what we're talking about here. We just need the stem cells that will become muscle or will become fat or connect, connected tissue. That's all we need. We don't need, you know, the, the very early precursor stem
0: cells. Got you. Last question. And I'll let you go. Labeling. There's been a big fight out here, you know, cattle ranchers, et cetera, saying, you, you know, initially to the plant based guys, cause the plant guys, guys have stuff in the supermarkets and restaurants saying, you can't call this meat and it can not be in the meat aisle because it's not. And that kind of sniping goes back and forth. But at the moment, that stuff is in the media aisle. But how do you see this playing out? Are the tensions already there? Like Because it does feel the marketing and branding will be incredibly important here in getting people to be okay with this idea of, you know, eating stuff that was grown in a lab, not in an animal. Absolutely right. I mean, the focus groups from all the companies and the industry associations
1: like Good Food Institute suggest that consumers are ready to try. But who knows until it's actually out there um, in terms of labeling the cattlemen's associations of the U.S., which are not as well funded as the NRA, but are quite well funded, have been doing everything. They've been you know, trying to get state legislation, federal legislation. And so far, they haven't succeeded. In the case of seafood, there has been an agreement, an industry agreement, that the cell-based seafood will be called cell-cultured seafood, and the wild seafood will be called wild-caught seafood, and the farm stuff will be called farmed seafood. That's, that's agreed, so there's a path forward there. In terms of the meat, I, I call them the agro-luddites. I think that they can and will make it longer to market for some of these products. The nomenclature pleture of the of the stuff. I just have no idea. But Beyond that Impossible have proven and corn and meatless farms here in the UK have, have proven that you can get shelf space if your product is selling and the consumers want it. And if you go into one of our supermarkets here, they're all over. I mean, it's, you know, I, I would say it's half the meat aisle now. So I'm not too worried about that. Uh, the industry associations in Europe are not nearly as strong. I don't see them in Asia at all. And the seafood industry doesn't really have a, a lobbying association of any power. There isn't any leather or materials industry association, I think, that, that can cause a fuss. So the number one is the U.S. meat producers associations. And without a doubt, they will be roadblocks to, to these companies. But ultimately, and I just want to point you to, I'm not, you know, the obvious analogy is the horse and cart people before the car came in in the 1900s. But I think a better one in food is pasteurization. The whole U.S. milk industry didn't want pasteurization, even though milk that was unpasteurized was killing lots and lots of people. The consumers demanded it, and uh, lo and behold, it was, manda- it was mandated by the federal government in the U.S., and the people who were dying of uh, milk-related incidents, very, very many of them, by the way, stopped dying because pasteurization was mandated. So consumers sometimes do lead
0: the charge in changing food habits. Right, right. Well, it's going to be an interesting 10 years.
1: Yeah. When I next come out to San Francisco, let's see if we can get hold of some of that uh, soul culture stuff and eat it together.
0: That would be awesome. I'm actually, interestingly, next week, I think I'm going to have a tasting at Upside slash Memphis Meats. All right. Oh, that would be great. And that... It's all the time we have. I wanted to thank Jim for taking the time to chat. I want to thank you all for listening. And like I said, I'd love to hear what listeners think. If you want to drop me an email at danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk, or you can tweet at me at dannyfortson. You know, just if you're in this universe, if you think it's what um, Jim is saying is sounds right, do you think it's not going to happen? If so, why not? Um, I just think it's a it's fascinating world. And when you think about the potential implications, again, as we discussed last week, you know, they're pretty profound if this does actually come to pass. But obviously there's much to figure out still and a lot, a lot of money to, to spend. Anyhow, hope you guys enjoyed it. I will be back next week with another show. So please do tune in. And thank you as ever for the ratings, for the reviews, for telling your friends about the show. And that's it. I will talk to you next week. Bye-bye.